once again, everyone. Uh, please keep your Bible, Bibles open to Romans 5. Uh, we'll be sticking uh, in this passage today. Um, and before I begin, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, uh, which brings light to our path. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. And so, Father, Lord, as we look into Romans 5 today, please help us to really feel and see uh, what this gospel means for us now that we understand the, the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, I always find myself in a bit of a conundrum uh, whenever I'm in a job interview. Uh, just a few months ago, uh, when I was interviewing for the company I now work part-time for, I was stuck between two competing thoughts uh, running through my mind. See, on the one hand, I want to tell the interviewer that I think I am competent for the job. I want to tell my past experience, my skills that I've acquired, why I would be a good fit for the team. But on the other hand, I've got another big fear. And that is, I fear being seen some, as someone who is arrogant and boastful, right? I don't know if you've, you've felt this before uh, as you've gone through interviews. Uh, and so I would actually spend probably more time in that interviewing uh, clarifying and adding caveats whenever I say something positive about myself. I really want to make sure that they're aware of my weaknesses as well and my past mental health struggles so I don't feel like I'm falsely advertising myself to them. And all the while I'm thinking, oh, am I overdoing it just a bit? Maybe I should try to sell myself a bit more. Because the thing is, we all hate people who boast, don't we? We don't like it. We don't like it when people can't stop talking about themselves, what they've done, what they own. Uh, implying that they're somehow superior to other people around them. Particularly as Aussies, our, our radars are very sensitive to those who love a bit of self-promotion, don't we? But in our passage today, we'll see that if we understand the gospel properly, then that is something we should rightly boast about, right? Not all boasting is bad. Uh, now, before we begin looking at our passage, let's remember that this is all part of one big argument, Right? The very first word that uh, May read for us is, therefore, therefore. So let's look back at what Paul has covered up to this point. Right? We've got the bad news. All of us are under God's judgment because we have all turned away from God. But then there's the wonderfully good news. Jesus is sent to pay for our penalty on the cross. And forgiveness is offered as a free gift. Uh, just last week, Paul showed us that Abraham actually proves that God justifies those who have faith. And it's been like that all the way through the Old Testament. It's not something new. Faith isn't our own work, we saw. Faith isn't our own effort, but faith is simply trusting. It's depending on God to work. And so just like Abraham, we also receive God's righteousness, God's blessings, God's promise simply by trusting that God is true to his word. Now, it's really important to keep this context in mind because now Paul is building on that, right? He says, therefore, if you get chapters 1 to 4, if you have faith in Jesus, if you truly trust and depend on the Son of God and what he has done for you, if you truly understand that you are justified, you are declared not guilty before God, then this means we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, I wonder what comes to mind when you hear this word, peace, right? 
Maybe in this very moment, in this uh, world climate, what comes to mind might be peace in Ukraine, right? Uh, maybe you think peace is when the day Ukraine and Russia come to an agreement to cease fire, when both leaders will agree not to fire another round anymore. And that is one aspect of peace. But in the context of Romans here, that doesn't actually begin to scratch the surface of what Paul is talking about. Because what is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about shalom. Shalom. Peace in the Old Testament. That is God's peace, God's shalom. It's, it's so much more than simply not being at war with someone. Shalom is not simply an absence of hostility. But shalom is wholeness. It's completeness. It is pure satisfaction. It's, it's true and deep well-being, prosperity, salvation of those who are godly, those who trust in God. It is God's blessings being poured out abundantly upon his people. Now, uh, we were chatting with Pastor Dave a couple of months back before church camp. And Pastor Dave mentioned how huge it was for a, a task it was for a pastor that he met, right? Because that pastor was pastoring a Russian-Ukrainian church. The church was made up of Ukrainians and Russians. Now, pastoring that church would be a huge task, wouldn't it? But if you just imagine that picture, imagine that church on a Sunday, right? As both Russian and Ukrainian brothers and sisters are sitting side by side each week. And if you can imagine, that they're not simply not killing each other. They're not simply tolerating each other's presence. But what are they doing? They're loving one another, regardless of their nationality, regardless of past hatred, past history. They're sacrificing their rights, their comforts to serve one another, worshipping the Lord Jesus together, praying together, all because of this peace, this shalom that they now have because Christ died for them. That is a picture of peace, isn't it? That's the peace that gospel brings. But another way to illustrate this is, is even on a, a more personal level, uh, we can understand, we've all experienced what not being at peace is like uh, with those around us, right? And this is particularly the case with those who are really close to us. Uh, so think about when we fight with our parents, with our kids, our spouses, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whatever. Not having peace with these people in our lives, that affects all other aspects of our lives, doesn't it? Right? When I'm in conflict with Sarah, my work at, at work is impacted. My relationship with my kids suffer. Even my enjoyment of my hobbies is affected. But conversely, when, when conflict is resolved, when relationship has been wonderfully restored, when there's been heartfelt reconciliation, then not only does our relationship now flourish, but this blessing is flowed out to all the other areas of our lives, right? And if this is the case with a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, parents, kids, how much more is this the case when we now have peace with God, right? When the judgment of God that we read about in chapters 1 and 2 is dealt with on the cross, removed, cast far away, when God no longer calls us his enemies, how much more would this restoration of relationship, this reconciliation now bring blessing to all areas of our lives? 
And Paul says, this reconciliation, this peace, it isn't something just to look forward to in the future, but we have it right now, right? It's in our hands. If we have that faith that Abraham had when he simply believed in God's promise, as we saw last week, if we trust God, we are standing right now in a state of peace with God. And one thing that's important to, to, to point out here is that Paul isn't talking about something subjective, right? It's not about a feeling of peace, like we're always going to be like, ah, peace. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about something that is objective. As a matter of fact, you are in a state of peace with God. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of your current anxieties, regardless of your worries, if you trust in Jesus, you have shalom, you have reconciliation, blessing from God right now. That is a fact if you trust in Jesus. Now, of course, uh, one natural result of meditating and, and contemplating this truth is that we would feel more peace, right? Uh, but even if we don't, it doesn't change the standing that we now have with God. But so now we possess such peace, such fullness and blessing with God. What does this look like for us? Well, this is where we get to the big idea. We boast, right? Usually this negative term, as we saw at the beginning today, but boasting here isn't just something that we do to promote ourselves. A boasting here is when we lift up something or someone being worthy of praise, be it ourselves or, or someone else. And so other translations might use the word exalt, glory, praise, rejoice. These are the things that we say, this is worth putting our hope in. This is true value. This is true meaning right there. I remember when, when uh, we were still living in Sydney, uh, before we were about to move up to Brisbane, I remember scrolling through the domain app or realestate.com and I rejoiced, I hoped, looking at these houses and thinking, wow, I can afford a house that has a backyard, right? In Sydney, I have no chance of affording a house with a backyard. Uh, just recently, after months of unemployment, getting that offer for a job, I rejoiced, I exulted in the day that I could finally have a, a stable income, right? I boasted about my upcoming job as I shared the good news with those around me, right? In a way, saying, this is my boast, this is my joy, this is what I reckon will secure my future, this is what I think will bring me happiness and joy, but as good as these things are, Paul reminds us there is something worth boasting about that far exceeds what I just mentioned, right? For us to really put our confidence in, for us to proudly declare to those around us, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? It is that hope that one day we would be like God, reflecting God in perfection as his children. That one day we would shed off all of our sin, all the traces of that fallen nature of our world completely removed. We would be without blemish. We would be with our God, enjoying God in fullness in the age to come. Remember from chapter 3, verse 23, what we lacked so badly but needed, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, this glory of God 
That's our hope now. That's ours. That's our boast. When was the last time we boasted in our hope of the glory of God? When was the last time we were faced with a difficult situation and instead of saying, my hope, my boast, my riches, is in my riches, my insurance, my skill, my job, but instead we say, with or without these things, my hope, my boast, my goal, what I look forward to the most in my life is to one day see God face to face and enjoy Him forever. But not only so, Paul says that if we understand this justification, this peace with God, then not only do we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also boast in our sufferings. Again, just a quick note, I'm sure you've already read it, but this word here in the NIV is translated glory, but this is actually the same word, uh, boast, uh, that we read before. So just as we rejoice, boast glory in the hope of the glory of God, we likewise rejoice, boast glory in our sufferings as well. Now, depending on uh, where you're at uh, with your journey of faith, you might be thinking, man, how does this make any sense? Why would I ever glory in my suffering? That's something to be avoided, right? Doesn't God want me to be freed from suffering? And the thing is, we have reached this level of affluence. We've reached this level of uh, medical advancement even. Uh, We're just so used to comfort, luxury, convenience that... Whenever we go through any sort of suffering, we can just medicate it or, or, or deal with it with, with our wealth, you know? Why rejoice in suffering when we can sort of deal with it, get rid of it even, altogether? Well, even if you are a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you've heard passages like this all the time. We read about how we are to rejoice in all situations, good and bad. How we know in all circumstances God works out His will through good and bad. We ought to know that we need to boast in our sufferings. But the thing is, when suffering comes, really heavy suffering, how hard is it to actually rejoice and boast during these times? And I I wonder if you've ever gone through something really tough and then you felt even more guilty that as we come across a a passage like this, you'd be like, I wasn't dancing and singing through it all. And so what does Paul mean here? Why rejoice in suffering? Well, in short, suffering produces something. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. See, if you think about anything that you've achieved in life, the biggest achievements, they don't come easily, do they? If you want to master any sort of sport, Uh, There are many steps to actually get you to where you want to go. So you start with the basics and and you stumble, you make a fool out of yourself, you get injured and it really hurts. But then you learn from your mistakes, you adjust your technique, your your body learns to adapt. And if you keep persevering, sooner or later you think, hey, I can do this. You begin to see results, which makes you even more motivated to push, which accelerates your suffering, but also your progress as well. And it's the same with all growth in life, isn't it? If you want to get a university degree, you start with the basics. You you do your first year courses and it gets harder and harder. You study harder and harder. That's how it is when you learn to cook, how to parent even. All of these things present really difficult obstacles and hurdles that are uncomfortable. We don't want to go through it. It's not fun. We don't enjoy the pain in and of itself. But what, what, what gets us through it? We look towards the end goal. 
the outcome that says that is all going to be worth it. It's the case with our present suffering. The challenges that we face now, it tests our trust in God. Will you hold on to God's promises as you go through this trial? Will we persevere in obedience to God's words when we are tempted to alleviate that suffering, even if it means disobeying God? Are we, are we going to succumb to that temptation? Right? If I just give in, if I just be like everyone else around me, if I do and say all, all, what my colleagues tell me to do, then I don't have to be ridiculed anymore. I don't have to be mocked by them. If I simply choose to spend all my money on myself, then I can medicate all my, my worries away with my materialism, with more and more entertainment to drown myself in luxury and distractions. But the thing is, if we struggle through our sufferings, if we work through our sufferings with God, as we choose daily to trust in God's provision, to trust God's promise of eternal life and look to that as our solution, we are continually exercising our spiritual muscle, which grows our perseverance, that grows our character, that tested validation showing us we can do it, we can continue living for God, and that builds our hope. And once again, what is that hope? What is the hope that Paul is talking about here? It's not the hope of getting a degree, buying our first house or whatever. All these hopes can be disappointing. They can be fleeting. They can be replaced by other hopes. They can become meaningless after a while. But what is our hope? Our hope is that if we follow Jesus, we have the glory of God before us. And of course, this can never put us to shame. You know, when we stand there on the last day, we won't look back 10, 50, 100 years later and say, what a stupid thing I put all my energy working towards. It's not a hope that's going to be hype overhyped. It won't seem underwhelming when we're standing before the Lord of the universe, the one who sent his son to sacrifice himself for us so that we could be with him forever in perfection. Life with our Father, life with our Lord Jesus, life with one another in perfect holiness. It's all going to be worth it. And so with this in mind, what does it look like to boast, to rejoice in our suffering? Well, hopefully first I should, we should see that it's not simply feeling giddy about going through suffering itself, right? But it is recognising as hard as suffering is, as painful as suffering is, as much as I want to say, I want to stop it right away. This joy that Paul is talking about, it is recognising that it is part of the process which will transform us, it will train us for the age to come. That as we do so, our character is being proven effective, our faith is being validated, and our hope, our trust, our desire for the life to come, as we go through more suffering, guess what? It makes us long for that perfect future all the more. It's building up our hope for what cannot overcome us. Sorry, for what cannot disappoint us. That hope is being strengthened in us as we wrestle with our pain. But now we can come to why we have this assurance of hope. Because, you know, as I painted this picture, this is the best thing ever, right? Nothing can, can be better than the hope of the glory of God. But even if that's true, what good is it if, well, it's only a probable outcome, 
right? What if we can't be 100% sure that it's going to happen? Well, Paul says we can be 100% sure. Why? Look at the timing of Jesus' death. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, just think about on a human level, how often do we really see a human being sacrificing themselves for another? Right? Even if you picture someone who is completely righteous, right? An upstanding citizen, he never goes one kilometre above the speed limit. He walks old ladies across the street and rescues cats out of trees just as a hobby. Right? Even if you meet such a person on the street, you see them in danger, how many people would you expect to give their lives to save that person? Right? Take a bullet for them. Throw themselves into harm's way just to push them out of danger. Hardly any, right? In fact, when these things do happen, it's, it's so amazing that it gets plastered all over the news. Even for a good person, Paul says, here good might be someone who merely isn't just following all the rules, but really goes out of their way to be a good person. Or perhaps it could mean someone that you have a special good relationship with, right? Like a child, your, your parent, a loved one, a dear friend. Even here, Paul says, maybe then someone might possibly dare to die. Like if the parents among us, we probably hope that, you know, when it comes to it, we would gladly give up our lives for our kids, right? But again, it, it, it's, it's not usual. It, it's, it's rare. It's, it's uniquely inspiring that Hollywood would spend millions of dollars to make a movie out of stories like this. I mean, even just think fiction. Think Captain America, right? Steve Rogers, oh wow, he's so good that he would throw himself on top of a, a live grenade to save his fellow soldiers. That's impressive, right? But as rare as it is for someone to die for another, do you know what we never see in Hollywood? Do you know what never happens? You never see Captain America jumping on top of a grenade to save a group of Hydra agents. You never see the heroes sacrificing themselves to save the enemy army. It doesn't make any sense, right? But this is exactly how God shows his love for us. Because when does he send Jesus to die for us? Not while we were righteous. We clearly weren't. The picture we get in chapters 1 and 2 is that we were angrily shaking our fists at God. We were blissfully unaware, worshipping the stuff around us instead of the God who made us. No, Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies. Just let that sink in for a bit. God doesn't say, you fix up your life first and then I'll consider sending my son Jesus to die for you. You sign here on the dotted line agreeing that you would do all these things that I want you to do and then maybe, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way for you to be my friend. No. While we were on the opposing army of God, that's when he sends Jesus to die for us. And Paul says, think about that. Because if you understand, if you get that, if you fully appreciate when Jesus died for us, then how can we have any reason to doubt God's word, God's goodness, God's love? Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God 
from God's wrath through him. For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If we understand the enormity of what God has done for us while we were his enemies, why do we have any reason to doubt that God would be for us now that we are reconciled, now that we are at peace with him, now that we are his friends, now that we are his children? If God has done the incredibly hard thing, why wouldn't he follow through to do the easy thing? It doesn't make any sense. And so Paul now points out to one last thing that we boast in. We boast, we rejoice, we have confidence in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only because of how wonderful this hope is, but we boast and rejoice in God because there is no reason to doubt in him whatsoever. Right? God will carry out his promise to completion. And that we can have 100% assurance. And to sum up, what does understanding chapters 1 to 4 mean? What does it mean now that we've gotten the good news of the gospel? What does it mean now that we are justified because of what Jesus has done? Well, it means we have peace. And it means we boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God that cannot disappoint us. We boast even in our sufferings, knowing that that only strengthens our hope. We boast in God through Jesus because there is no way that this promise will be taken away from us. And so the only question that remains is, are we people who boast? Are we people who boast in the right things? Are we propelled by an uncontained excitement for one day claiming for ourselves the hope of being like God, perfect, sinless, holy, not to behold God in fear and terror, but as a child running into the arms of a loving father. Is that what makes our lives worth living? Is that what we look forward to as we start daydreaming of a better future for ourselves? We have the glory of God, standing with our Lord Jesus, enjoying him, worshipping, singing, dancing, fellowshipping. That's what we were made for. And so what other hope can compare, right? The thing is, do we also boast when things get hard in our lives? Do we ever doubt that God is really for us when the walls start closing in on us? When standing up for Jesus looks like it's costing us more and more? Do we ever tempt, are we ever tempted to feel that it's not worth it? Well, let's get back to the hope that we have. That we have been promised life in the age to come that as we live with God, all our tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more pain, no more death, no more persecution. That hope will not disappoint us. And have you ever tempted to doubt God is truly for you when these hard times come? Do you begin to wonder, does God really love me? Why did he allow all this to happen to me? Why isn't God answering my prayers? Why is God not taking this pain away when you've been seemingly stuck in this pit for so long? Well, let us again remind us of the assurance of this hope that we have, of God's goodness, God's faith, because Jesus went to the cross for you while we were enemies. That's when. And so don't doubt that God is for you, no matter how hard it gets in life. Brothers and sisters, let us come away today as people who boast. Let's be boasters 
in the one who is worthy to be the object of that boast. Let us boast. Let us put our confidence in the hope that will never disappoint us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in a world where there is so much up in the air in terms of what's going to bring pure joy, purpose, meaning in life as we debate so many things that we don't even know whether they're worth holding on to. We thank you, Lord, that we have this rock-solid hope in you because you have secured it. This hope of life, this hope of forgiveness, of being restored to relationship with you, of being like you without sin, in perfect holiness. No more tears, no more pain. And Father, we just ask, because this hope is, is not tangible before us. We just read about it and we want something like this, but we're so easily distracted by all the other things, other hopes in this world. Father, please, we pray that you would help us to be people who keep listening to your word, holding this hope up before us so that we could really keep trusting in you and keep trusting that you would bring about this hope into completion. And as we do so, as we continue life holding on to this hope, Father, we pray that you'd be transforming us, growing our perseverance, growing our character, growing our hope. And it's for your glory, for your sake that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.